0: To, uh we're, we're in the middle of an expositional study through the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, this is our 30th Sunday that we've talked about the book of Romans. We're going verse by verse through it. Uh, it is the aspiration of this pastor to preach through the entire New Testament, verse by verse, eventually. And, and in the time that we've been doing it here, we've covered the book of John. We've covered the book of James. We've covered First and Second Peter we have covered the book of Jude, and we are in the book of Romans, and and we have intentions to continue in that vein. Now, every now and then, we take a break and do something else. We did a whole year in Pentecostal doctrine, just basic doctrine. So that's not saying that we will always, but but my aspiration over the course of my ministry is to cover every verse of the New Testament. And Today, we are in Romans chapter 6. We started Romans chapter 6 last week, and we looked at... We, we did kind of an intro to the chapter, and we looked at the first two verses of Romans chapter 6, and today, I really like to handle the first four verses of Romans chapter 6 as a unit, and so today, we're going to finish those th- the next two verses, which is the, the, the end of that four-verse unit that I, I really think is pivotal to understanding everything else that's going to happen in the next three chapters, but Romans chapter 6, we began in verse 1 and 2 last week, and And there Paul answered a pivotal question. The question was, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul answered that with another question, an incredulous question of his own. He said, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The definitive answer from Paul is that the believer should not continue to live in sin. Instead, He or she should live the life of an overcomer. We sung that song just a moment ago. He has overcome, he overcame sin. He overcame death. He overcame the grave and he overcame the world. Amen. And he didn't overcome just so we could stand and sing that he is an overcomer, but he overcame so that we could be overcomers. Amen. Every believer wants the hope of resurrection. You're going to overcome death. One of these days you believe that that is the hope of your life. Amen. But it wasn't just about overcoming death. He overcame this world. He overcame this life. He overcame sin he overcame the bondage of sin amen and he intended for you to be an overcomer too amen so the question should we continue in sin and the answer how in the world can we do that seeing that we have died to sin and we don't live any longer there that that question that paul asked as the answer uh, implies, Uh, a truth that provides us with a fundamental foundation for the life of a believer. Amen. We must live a changed life. Our life is not to be the same after we come to Jesus Christ. Amen. Our life is supposed to change whenever we experience the, 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 the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, The next passage of chapter 6 from verse 3 to verse 14 provides the the reader with a three-step approach to living as an overcomer. And I'm going to mention it here kind of as an overview because I'm not going to take all of those verses in stride in one lesson. And and if I don't mention it as an overview, it might get lost in the, the details as we go through these verses. So let me tell you what's unfolding in verses 3 through 14. First of all, Paul's given us these three steps that, that lead to the life and overcomer. The first step is that you must know. You've got to know what happened to you at salvation, you need to know what it meant when you repented of your sins, when you were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins, and when He filled you with the Holy Ghost. That meant something. You need to know what that meant. Secondly, you must reckon, or a reckon means to count or apply it make it a part of your life what we now know we have to count it as being real as being true in our lives it's not enough just to to know it we've got to App, apply it. We've got to bring the application of what we now know into our lives. We've got to act like we have that knowledge. And then finally, he says that we must yield our lives to God. You got to know. You got to reckon what you know. You got to. It's some people know, but they don't ever really apply what they know. Does that make sense? So, well, that sounds kind of redundant. you got to know, and then you got to reckon what you know. Well, some people know, and they don't ever reckon it. Amen. When you know it, you've got to apply it. You've got to bring it into your life. And then when you bring it into your life, that leads to that third step, which is yielding your life to God on the basis of that revelation. What you now know and what you are now reckoning to be real in your life should then lead you to a life of submission to God, to yielding to Him. That's the overview of verses 3 through 14. Verses 3 through 10 deal with the, the knowing portion of it. And if you can see the, the disparity there, four, the 3 through 14 is the whole uh, three-step process, but the bulk of it is attributed to the first step. It, it It's the knowing that really sets the course. You've got to know what happened to you. And so this morning, we're going to set out on that track, and we'll start with just the first two verses of that section, and, and we're going to establish the critical thing, that every believer must know. This is the foundation of holy living. This is the foundation of living a life that is pleasing to God. We're in, we're in this section now, this letter that deals with sanctification. I spent a long time last week talking about sanctification. I'm not going to redefine that again this morning. But it's about living godly. It's about living righteous. It's about letting your salvation now show up in the way you live. The foundation of that is understanding what happens. When he saved you, you've got to know. So we'll begin with our text is verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. That's our text for this morning. Verse 3, and I'm going to read it again, then I'm going to talk about it. Verse 3 says, know ye not. It's about what you know. Amen. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So Paul starts with the, a question: "Know ye not?" Now there's a note of surprise there, and maybe even a little dismay. Paul's readers ought to already know this; they, they ought to already understand what he's about to say. It's, it, it, it's a question to those who have continued in sin after they were saved. Didn't you know what happened to you? He's effectively, effectively, he's saying: Are you really? Ignorant of this? Do you really not understand what happened to you? It's a very emphatic thing. Paul asks this kind of question very often in his writing. If you read much of the epistles written by the apostle Paul, you'll, you'll come on this kind of a question, know ye not. You're going to see this over and over again. You'll, you'll become familiar with it. it is a, it's a rebuke of sorts. It's, it's like he's saying, you really should know this. You really, I shouldn't even have to under explain this. I shouldn't even have to spell this out. This is stuff you should have gotten. You ought to already be established in this, but just in case you aren't, I'm going to explain it. That's what he means when he says, no, you're not. Now, in this in this instance, what they should know relates to what happened to us in baptism. And it is an interesting thing to note that the Apostle Paul blatantly expects here that every believer will have been baptized. Didn't you know what happened to you when you were baptized? It it is understood from the very foundation. There isn't even the slightest hint that someone could have genuine faith in Jesus Christ The kind of faith that yields justification by faith, but not have been baptized. Every believer, in the mind of Paul, every one of them were baptized into Jesus Christ. He gives absolutely no credence to the idea that there could be an unbaptized believer. Amen? Oh, that's simple. But that's what is implied in the verse. It isn't an oversight. This isn't isn't Paul overlooking somebody. This is is a statement of this is what they should have already known. They should have already understood. It was absolutely fundamental. It was absolutely a, a basic part of the presentation of the gospel in the first century church. When they told people what you need to do to be saved, they said you've got to repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Paul assumes that if you're a part of the church, if you're a part of the people that he's writing to, then you've been baptized. It's just a basic understanding of what it means to be a part of the church amen it's essential to becoming a Christian that you were in the process of salvation you were baptized notice We've talked a lot about faith, and we've talked a lot about justification by faith, and we've waded through five chapters now where we've explained the inner workings of our salvation. We've explained that we're not saved by our works, and we've explained that what we do didn't save us. It was the faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. So many people want to drive a wedge of separation in there and say, well, then my faith doesn't have to have any works, but that's not what the Bible teaches. My faith is in the fact that Jesus Christ died for my sins compels me to repent of those sins it's not my act of repentance that saves me it's my faith that saves me but my faith demands that I repent my faith that he died for me and was buried for my sins amen that faith compels me to go to the preacher and say I need to be baptized uh, in the name of Jesus Christ me getting in the water doesn't wash away my sins uh, my faith in the name of Jesus Christ uh, washes away my sin but my faith demands uh, that I'm baptized in his name. My faith demands that I yield my life to him and that I'm filled with the Holy Ghost just like the scripture says. It's not anything that I do that causes that but my faith reaches out and says I believe and because I believe I'm going to receive what it is that God has for my life. Amen? So Paul assumes if you got faith, the kind of faith that we talked about for five chapters now, if you've got that kind of faith, then you've been baptized. If you got the kind of faith that justified you, if you got the kind of faith that brought you into salvation, then you have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, understand this. Paul is not questioning if they've been baptized. That's not the question. He's questioning if they understand the deep significance of what happened when they were baptized. Every one of them, he assumes, has been baptized. Now here's the crux of the issue. When we repented and were baptized in the name of Jesus, we applied his death and his burial to our lives. It also needs to be noted that both faith and and repentance are presupposed here as the precursors to baptism. If you've been baptized, then you've believed, and you've repented. Amen? We talked about this last week. Whenever you repent, repentance is about turning from sin to God. Repentance means death to the old man, death to the old lifestyle, death to the pursuit of, of sinful lust and sinful desires. Repentance is about dying. Amen. We talked extensively about that last week. Now water baptism is about being buried. Water baptism has no value until repentance has first taken place. You don't bury that which was alive, not unless you want to be arrested. Amen, once you bury you better be dead. Amen. So at that time at baptism we are personally identified, with the burial of Jesus Christ, you've got to be dead before you can be buried. So Paul says that we are baptized into his death. It's presupposed here that we have repented. We have died. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 3 and 27, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that we were baptized into his death, we were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. Baptism bears the spiritual significance of being associated with the burial of Jesus Christ. That matters because the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death you identify with in repentance The burial you identify with in baptism, and the resurrection is that spirit that comes inside of you when you're filled with the spirit of the Holy Ghost, with the spirit of God. Amen? Death, burial, and resurrection. So it is important then that we identify with the burial of Jesus Christ, and we do that in baptism. The spiritual, what we're seeing in this, and and I, I know it's just two verses. There is so much that happens in these two verses. What we're seeing is the spiritual application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's unfolding right before our eyes in these two verses. When we repent, actually in the four verses, that's why I like to handle one through four. Really, they're, they're, they're a whole. But if I had handled them as a whole, we'd have been here all afternoon last last week, and I, I didn't want to do that. So here we are. But it, it is it's a it's, it's the unfolding of. What happens to us in salvation? When we repent, we identify with the death of Jesus Christ. When we we go to an altar and we die out to flesh and to sin. And when we're baptized, we identify with the burial of Jesus Christ. We're buried with him in baptism. That's the gospel opening up right before our eyes. Now, it needs to be said at this point that baptism scripturally is composed of two necessary elements. You've got to be baptized both by water and by spirit. There is a physical element and there is a spiritual element. Both water and spirit are essential to baptism. And the spirit baptism identifies us then with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the key third element of the gospel. Paul said if he was If he died for our sins and was buried alone and never rose from the grave, then our faith is in vain. This doesn't, our gospel doesn't, has no effect. It has no power. The key to the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just the cross. It isn't just a borrowed tomb. It is the fact that on the third day he got up out of that grave. And if you identify with Calvary in your salvation experience, then you must repent just like the the cross. You've got to go to the cross and you've got to die and you've got to be buried with him in baptism, but it doesn't stop there. It can't stop there because if it stops there, then my faith is in vain. I've got to go that next step the, spirit of the the baptism of the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, is the key third element to the gospel. Amen? Another key point to consider here is that the Apostle Paul refers to baptism as being baptism into Christ Jesus. The important thing here is that, and this is key to all of this, everything I'm saying this word, The important thing here is that Paul doesn't even dwell on the point. Paul doesn't even stop and think, you know, I need to explain what that means, baptism into Christ Jesus. He just assumes that the first century believer knows what he is talking about. Paul assumes that all believers will know what it means to be baptized into Christ Jesus. My friend, when we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, we are baptized into Christ. That's the way the first century church baptized every authority, every historian, every theological historian authority will tell you baptism was in the name of Jesus Christ alone for the first several hundred years of the church. That's the way they baptized. There isn't even any dispute there. Those that would try to propose that there's a better or another formula for baptism will readily tell you that Paul and Peter and those guys just weren't, they they hadn't yet realized the revelation of the Trinity. They, They just weren't that smart yet. The truth is they baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And the absolute truth is, they had an understanding of Scripture, unprecedented. They walked with He who was the living Word. And if they didn't understand it, nobody 300 years later understood it better than they did. Can I get an amen? So they baptized in the name of Jesus. That preposition, Paul says, baptized Into Christ Jesus. That preposition into has the connotation of moving from one space to another, moving from one place to another. It also has the connotation of purpose. We are baptized, when we are baptized in His name, we are purposefully and deliberately baptized into Jesus Christ. That's something that. Paul assumes is common knowledge among believers. A a spiritual transaction takes place when you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You literally become a part of the body of Christ. You're baptized into Christ. Now, all of that is what Paul assumes that his readers already know. They know this. This is... Implied, It's it's right there. There's there's no question as of the fact of whether or not they were baptized and the fact of whether or not they were baptized into Jesus Christ. These are are things that are just standard stuff. The question that he has is do they understand what it meant to be baptized into the death of Christ. Paul is saying if you were baptized into Christ, if you were buried with him in baptism, don't you realize That this means that you have to have died with him as well. And if you died, that answers the question of verse 1. Should we continue in sin? How can we continue in sin if we've died? We've already died to sin. So that brings us to verse 4. Therefore, he says, we're buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk... In the newness of life. I'm going to start with that first before the colon. Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. It's kind of a restatement of some of the stuff we've been saying already this morning. It is the point that Paul is making. And he is redundant on purpose. Baptism is a means of identifying with the death of Jesus Christ. Specifically is an identification with his burial. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12 states that very, very directly says we were buried with him in baptism. We're buried with Christ in baptism. So just as the man Jesus Christ died and was buried while he was dead, so we die at sin in repentance and we die out to sin in repentance and then we are baptized, are buried with Jesus Christ. Now, I know that the primary purpose of verse 3 and 4 is not to teach on the proper mode of baptism but I would be remiss if I didn't point some things out as we go through this the link between baptism and burial only makes sense if baptism is by immersion it only makes sense if you're buried in water just like you're buried in the earth Comparing water baptism to burial is incomprehensible unless we assume that they baptize by immersion. A person is not buried by sprinkling a few drops of dirt on the body. You do that and the body's going to stink. A person is buried by being totally submerged in the earth. You put them in a hole and you bury them. You put dirt on them. And you put dirt on them until you can't see them anymore. Then you just keep putting dirt on them we don't want them coming back up. Can I get an amen? So it follows that the proper means of baptism is by immersion. The baptized person should be totally submerged in the water. They should be put in water and put under the water. That is the only way that the pattern of burial is faithfully replicated. So well, why does that matter? The, it matters because These references make it obvious that the early church baptized by immersion. They took people to water and they baptized them underwater the same way that Jesus Christ was baptized. Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan. He was immersed by John the Baptist under the water. That's the way they baptized. They baptized just like they saw John the Baptist baptize Jesus. And if the early church baptized, baptized that way. This is why it matters. This is why I'm spending time here and saying, look, baptism is compared to burial, and that matters because if the early church baptized that way, then that's the way the church ought to still baptize. Nobody gave me the authority or anybody else to change the pattern. My Bible said they continued in the apostles' doctrine. I want to do it like they did it. It matters that we do it like they did it. Amen. And so they baptized by immersion. They put people under the water. Likewise, Paul's inspired teaching in this passage of Scripture only makes sense if the baptism is in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a personal identification with Jesus Christ. We are buried with Him. Listen, with Him. Colossians, we are buried. With Him, we're baptized into His death. We're baptized into Christ. I've used all three of those references this morning. There is no plurality of persons there. There's nothing plural about that. We're baptized with Him. We're baptized into His death. We're baptized into Christ. There's nothing plural about that. The first century church, the church that Paul was writing to, had absolutely no concept of any kind of a baptism in a trinity of persons. There wasn't any idea that there were multiple persons. They were not baptized into the Father, into the Son, into the Holy Ghost. And they certainly were not baptized into the death of the Father. Or into the death of the Holy Ghost. Listen. Jesus Christ died for my sins. And when I'm baptized. I'm baptized into His death. I'm baptized into Him. I'm baptized in His name. Because baptism relates specifically and personally. To Jesus Christ, not to three persons in the Trinity. Uh, that's strong doctrinal stuff, but that's the kind of stuff we need to hear. Amen. Peter said in the book of First Peter, said, I want to stir your remembrance. There were some things you heard before you need to hear again. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the stuff we ought to already know. That's exactly what Paul is doing now. There are some things that the the church in Rome should have already understood. But I want to stir your remembrance. So let me stir your remembrance. There's a reason why we take you down to the water and put you under that water in the name of Jesus Christ. Because that is what your baptism identifies you with. It identifies you with Jesus. Can I get an amen? Both Paul. And the Roman church must have known only baptism by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no way these passages make sense under any other set of circumstances. If that wasn't the case, Paul would not have thought of baptism as a burial with Christ. Or expected his readers to see it as such without some kind of explanation. He would have had to stop and said, Well, what I mean by that is, I, I know you were baptized according to Matthew twenty eight, nineteen. I know you were baptized in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. What I mean by that is that it was Jesus Christ that died for you and you're baptized. And he doesn't do that. There is no explanation. The assumption is that they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The latter half of that verse says that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Now Paul links water baptism to spirit baptism. If we're buried with him, if we've identified with Christ's death and burial, then we're also going to identify with his resurrection. Just as God raised the man Christ Jesus from death, So then we should rise from repentance and water baptism to walk in the newness of life. It's important to note that Paul is speaking of a, he's not speaking of a future resurrection. He's not saying that if you're saved on that great day when the trumpet of God sounds, you're going to raise from the dead, although that is certainly a result of having identified with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he's not talking about some future tense, impersonal thing that's going to happen somewhere down the road. Just like repentance was personal, just like baptism was personal, just like those things identified us, they were personal acts of identification with Jesus Christ in death and in burial, this newness of life is also a personal experience. Amen? We identify with the resurrection of Jesus Christ through the infilling of the Holy Ghost, it's a personal thing it happens here, amen, it happens in my life, it's not something I, I'm looking forward to the great day I am looking forward to that great day and when the trump of God does sound, amen if I'm dead in the ground, the grave can't hold me down, amen, I'm leaving this world to go and be with him, but the promise is that if I repent of my sins, if I die, and if I'm buried in his name, he's going to give me that same spirit which quickened Christ Jesus from the death. it's going to come to live inside of me. That's where my hope of resurrection comes from. Amen. That resurrection life is going to live inside of me. It's going to be a personal experience. The death of our old man simply prepares the way for our new life. The main idea is that we also, like Christ, should walk in the newness of life or that we too should live a new life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. He overcame. He wears the victor's crown. That that whole, when we celebrate it at Easter. It's a great, 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 wonderful thing. That resurrection from the grave is more than just a reason to have a holiday. It represents infinite life-giving power. Jesus Christ was the firstborn of the dead. His was the first time. It was the... The first time that a, a, a sinless sacrifice uh, had died and had been buried and arisen again. But the implications of that new life extend beyond him. It extends into our lives as well. He was the firstborn of the dead. and The power of his resurrection has the power to produce in us a new life. It produces in us the ability to walk. In the newness of life. The ultimate purpose and goal of our own personal spiritual death. And spiritual burial and resurrection with Christ. That process that takes place in repentance and baptism. And the infilling of the Holy Ghost. The purpose of that is not so I can say well I'm saved now. Let me sit back and ride a pew to heaven. That's not not what it's about. The purpose of that is this last phrase. Even so, we also should walk in the newness of life. That's what it's about. It's about a new life. It's about living different. It's about living. This is the answer. Should we continue in sin? No. We died with him. We were buried with him. We were filled with his spirit, resurrection, and life. We're supposed to live in the newness of life. The focus here, the emphasis here is on life. Prior to our conversion, the scripture says in Ephesians 2 and 1, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We were dead before we came to Jesus Christ, but when we identified With his death and his burial and his resurrection. When we repented and were baptized in his name and filled with the Holy Ghost. Everything changed. Now the the dominant controlling power in our life is not death. Our existence is characterized by life instead. Instead. We've been filled with the Spirit of God. There's a, a newness of life. There's a new life that has been planted inside of us. That's been birthed in our heart. That has been transmitted to us by the infilling of the Holy Ghost. We have a new life. Now I'm quickly coming to a close, but and I'm not going to say a whole lot here, but this is probably the most pivotal thing I'm going to say this morning is what I'm about to say. It is important to note how Paul refers to this new life. We don't just live this life. He said we walk in it. That, that Greek word for walk is one of Paul's favorite expressions. He uses throughout the epistles to describe our behavior, our daily conduct. He uses it over 30 times in his writing in that manner. To walk in the newness of life. It means to live a holy life. A life of obedience to God. That's the whole purpose of our death to sin. Our burial with Jesus Christ. And our resurrection with him. The purpose is not that we can continue to live a life. That ignores the sacrifice that was made at Calvary. The purpose is that we can live a life that is empowered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God, and and live a life that demonstrates that we respect the fact that we have been set free from the bondage of sin. It's not a license to continue in sin. It is an admonishment to understand We have been delivered from sin and we should live that way. The verb walk is subjunctive and what that means is it's in our hands. The text says we should walk. Listen, if you don't get anything else I'm going to say, get this. Death to sin and resurrection to life should cause us to live a new life. It should cause us to live a different, changed life. The important word there is should. If we truly died to sin, if we've been buried with him baptism, baptism, if we've been filled with his life-giving spirit, then we should go on to live a new life. We should go on to live a life that demonstrates those realities. that That is the experience that has happened, that new life has been born in us, and that is what it should create. It should create a newness of life ju- for us. But just because God filled you with the Holy Ghost doesn't mean that he's going to force you then to live right. Just because He put His Spirit inside of you does not mean that He's going to force you to live the way you ought to live. Just because the Holy Ghost inhabits your heart doesn't mean that the Spirit of God is going to dictate to you and force you to live that way. You should live that way. You have... A You have a choice in that. You have an impact upon that. It It is in your hands. It is something that you should do. Now that you've repented, now that you've been baptized in his name, now that you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, you ought to know you can't stay the same. You should live different now. You shouldn't go back to your old ways. You shouldn't go back to the old things. You shouldn't go back to the bondage of sin. Oh, but God loved me when I was a sinner. Yes, he did. But he didn't save you to leave you that way. He didn't die on a cross so that you could continue to live the way you live before you came to the cross. If he wanted to leave you that way, honey, he wouldn't have died on the cross. He wouldn't have went to Calvary if he wanted you to stay the way you were. We should be changed. We should live, walk in the newness of life. When a baby is born, a baby should thrive. It should eat, it should grow, it should mature, it it should learn to crawl, and then eventually it should learn to walk. And God forbid it learns to drive. God have mercy. There's a process of growth that should take place. You know what happens whenever what should happen doesn't happen? They call it failure to thrive. And when a baby fails to thrive, it eventually dies. You should walk in the newness of life. If you don't, my friend, there's a serious, serious downside to that. Because that life that was born inside of you then dies. You were dead in trespasses and sin. Now you're alive in Christ Jesus. But if you follow after the flesh instead of after the spirit, eventually that which was born dies. I don't want to be in that condition. That's why Paul said you should walk. In the newness of life. That's what sanctification is about. That's what these next three chapters are about. It's about holy living. Oh, preacher, you don't have a right to tell me how to live. No, I don't. The Holy Ghost inside of you does, though. The one that died for you and bought you with his blood, he's got the right. Either he bought you or he didn't. And if he bought you, he owns you. And if he owns you, your life is not your own anymore. It's not the preacher's job to tell you. The preacher's going to preach faithfully what God told him to preach and what the Word of God says to preach. It's your job to be obedient to the Holy Ghost, to the Spirit of God that lives inside of you. Don't you know what happened? He bought you. I'm going to get way out of my notes, but I'm going to go there for just a moment. You were a slave to sin. You were in bondage to sin. It controlled you. It had the authority over you. You did what sin told you to do. And the transaction that took place at Calvary was about redeeming you. Redemption means to buy you out of slavery. It was about buying you out of sin. It was about setting you free from that bondage. What happened at Calvary is that you, whenever you come to the cross, you're repenting your sins, you're baptized in His name, you're filled with the Spirit, you cast off those chains. But you now belong to Him. He bought you. How many are familiar with the story of Hosea and Gomer? You know, God told prophet. Go out and get a wife out of harlotry. Go marry a woman of ill repute. Bring her into your home. Make her your wife, mother of your children. Love her. It must have been a difficult thing. Hosea goes and does exactly what God told him to do. And over the course of time, they, they have a marriage, I guess it's some there, there's a happy times, any marriage is that way, and then there are the rough times. And then Hosea goes back to her, her, Gomer goes back to her old lifestyle. And she starts maybe a little, the implication of the story is that it's kind of a progressive thing. And then eventually she runs off. She leaves him. And, and that all transpires Then the passage of time the, the spirit of God directs Hosea to, to a place where Gomer's now on the auction block she's a slave now she's, she's indebted herself and she, she can't buy her way to freedom and she's now a slave and, and she's Hosea's by right she's his wife and God tells him to buy her and he goes to that place and he buys her and when he brings her home Hosea could have done two things. He could have chained her to the kitchen sink and said, You know what, honey? I tried to love you. I tried to make you my wife. I tried to make a relationship with you, and you wouldn't have anything of it. But now I own you, and you're going to be my servant. You're going to clean my house. You're going to take care of your kids. They're ours together. You're going to be a part of this marriage, and and you're going to be in bondage to me for the rest of your life. He could have done that. He had the right. She was his slave but he didn't do that. He told her you're free. You do whatever you want to do. I hold no bondage over you. She could have chosen to go back to that life. Instead she chose to come home. Live with him. Jesus Christ bought you out of slavery. He bought you out of sin. He only asks you live a life that reflects what he has done for you. You have the choice. You can go back. You can go right back to the slavery. You can go right back to the sin. You go right back to the bondage. Like the, the scripture we used last, we talked about the hog that had been washed clean and goes back to wallowing in the mire. That's your choice. He's not going to force you. But it shouldn't be that way. If he loved you enough to buy you, If he loved you enough to set you free. If he loved you enough to give you a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth chance. If he loved you enough to to show you mercy over and over again. When you should have found judgment. You found mercy. If he loved you that much. Then you should love him back. And you should live a life that demonstrates. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You shouldn't go back to living the way you lived before. You just, you know, I know it's it's not about legalism. It's not about rules. It's about what you should do for a God that loved you enough to save you. That called you out. That said, separate yourself to me. It's about living a life that reflects the high price that was paid. It cost something. It cost Hosea to purchase Gomer out of slavery. It cost the eternal God. The ancient of days. The one who was and he is and forever will be. Whose throne endures for all of time. He humbled himself to become a man he made himself, my Bible says a little lower than the angels that he might suffer death for every man they beat him, they mocked him, they spit upon him, they put a crown of thorns on his head, they drove nails into his hands and his feet and if that wasn't enough they pushed a spear into his side and blood and water flowed it cost him dearly to redeem you from sin you should live a That reflects the price. That was paid for you. You should walk worthy. That's what Paul says later. Walk worthy. Of the sacrifice. That was made. Would you stand with me.